church, it's good to gather with you. One uh, a request from you, prayer request from you before I launch. Uh, the elders are, uh, we meet every other week on Thursday nights from 7 to 9. Um, I appreciate your prayer for those meetings. We are uh, uh, putting our uh, our collective wisdom, if you want to call it that, together. We are planning the future of this church, and uh, we desperately need you to pray for us. We are crafting the vision, purpose, mission statement of the church. We are uh, thinking through strategic objectives and, and different things, that different, uh, uh, the actual direction that we want to head as a church. And, and so it's crucial that, uh, uh, that we, we uh, receive your prayers, we cover your, your wisdom. Um, in, in many ways, we'll be seeking your input and wisdom because we want the collective wisdom and input of the body as we think about uh, how to proceed as a church, how to make this church an instrument that advances the Great Commission. So I'd appreciate your prayer for that. Well, I want to begin by saying that for a wife to submit to her husband is a nasty-sounding scenario, isn't it? I mean, even just saying the word out loud kind of feels oppressive, kind of feels stifling, controlling, tyrannical, domineering. And, and to be sure, submission would be nasty if any of those things were true. I mean, if all the misrepresentations and caricatures about submission were true, I mean, if, if submission really was, as some claim, part of an ancient system of male dominance that taught that women were inferior to men and thus should be controlled, that would be true. But you see, the problem is, is not that the Bible calls wives to submit to their husbands. The problem is in people's misconceptions of what they think that means. Because what they think it means, what the Bible actually means, isn't necessarily the same thing. Because what if, just go with me on this, but what if submission, rather than being an ancient system of male dominance, what if it was actually an eternal design of God to display something magnificent about salvation? What if God embedded into the roles of men and women an object lesson? A parable, as it were, of his divine, eternal, redemptive plan. What if womanhood and submission exist to display the masterpiece of the very plan of salvation itself? Final what if? What if, what if submission was the surprise of history and it had nothing to do with stifling women or suppressing their freedom, but rather liberating them to be who God created them to be. What if that were the case? Because guess what? All of those what ifs are true. And speaking of joyful, liberated women living to display the masterpiece of salvation, that's exactly where we're going this morning. And, and I know that seems weird that joyful and liberated and submission could be in the same sermon, let alone even in the same sentence, but I assure you that is exactly what the Bible teaches. So this morning, risky though it may be, I take, I take on the Herculean task of preaching a sermon on submission. In fact, what this is gonna be is a theology of submission, which means from Genesis literally to Revelation, I'm gonna show you what it is, why it matters, why it's good news, and why it literally has cosmic significance. At the very least, it, this will not be boring. But you see, the reason why, the reason why a wife's submission to her husband has cosmic significance is because it has nothing, nothing to do with male chauvinistic domination of women. No, you're thinking of Islam. The Quran teaches that, that that's not the Bible. You see, the Bible teaches, on the other hand, that submission is part of a woman's role that as a whole is designed to display the very plan of salvation itself. And, and the thing about the roles of men and women is what they do when men and women fulfill those roles is that they produce a healthy church. And the thing about a healthy church is that that's exactly what Paul's letter to Titus is designed to produce. We say it every week, what this is is the blueprints for a healthy church. In other words, when you strip a church down, as it were, 
to its bare beams and studs and very foundations and you remove the American cultural preferences that aren't actually commanded by the Bible, the raw materials with which you rebuild the church are all found in Paul's letter to Titus. And although there are lots of things Paul says you need for a healthy church, one of the essential components that you need is when men and women, husbands and wives, fathers and mothers, young and old, fulfill their God-ordained roles in the church. And believe it or not, what God is calling each of you to be, what God is calling you to be in this, this grand mission called the Great Commission is all found in Titus chapter 2. And in this chapter, you remember, you've been here long enough, you know that Paul identifies five groups. And he gives to Titus a personalized game plan for how each of those groups can maximize their effectiveness for the Great Commission. He lists number one and number two, older men and older women, 50-ish and above. Group number three is younger women, 40-ish and below. Group number four is young men. And group number five is slaves. This morning, I want to go back to younger women. I want to go back to them because you remember that on the list of things that young women are to be, last on the list, it says that they are to be submissive to their own husbands. And that is so misunderstood and so misrepresented and so glorious and profound and and surprisingly interesting that we have to go back and revisit exactly what that is. And let me just insert a little parenthesis here. I realize that the odds are against me, that that no matter how carefully I frame this, and no no matter how delicately I define this, that when some people hear the word submission, the first thing that comes in their minds is some some harsh, heavy-handed brute that dominated his wife and had the audacity to call that submission. So this morning, I want you to forget that guy, and I want you to look at what the Bible actually says. So here we go. This morning, I want you to see from our text three features of submission. Three features of submission of wives to husbands in marriage, get this, designed to display the drama of salvation itself. That's where we're going. Three features of submission of wives to husbands in marriage designed, it has a design, designed to display the very drama of salvation itself. That's where we're going. Because look again at Titus 2, verses 3 through 5. Speaking to older women, Paul says, look look what Paul tells them to be and do. He says, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderous, not enslaved to much wine. Here it is, teachers of what is good. Notice that last virtue at the end of verse 3. Older women are to be teachers in the local church. As many as older women there are in the local church, there are as many teachers in the local church. Why? Because Paul's personalized game plan for how all older women can maximize their effectiveness for the Great Commission is to be teachers, to be mentors, to be disciplers in the local church. And yet the question is, who exactly are they supposed to teach? And what exactly are they supposed to teach them? Verses four and five. Look what he says. Older women are to instruct the young women. There's the who. Now, what is the what? What are they to teach them? To love their husbands, to love their children, to be sober-minded, pure, workers at home, kind, and here it is, submissive to their own husbands in order that the word of God not be reviled. So older women, do, do you see that? Your mission Should you choose to accept it, and I hope you do because the health of the church depends upon it, but your mission is to intentionally and faithfully invest the word of God into the lives of the younger women in the church and of this church in particular. That's called ministry. That's called discipleship. That's exactly how a church becomes a healthy church that changes the world. And yet notice, notice, last on the list that you are to teach the younger women is to submit to their own husbands. Women are to teach women to do that. What it means, how it works, why it matters, and why it puts Christ on display. That that is your job from the God of the universe. The question is, ladies, are, are you ready for that calling? 
Or are you equipped and, and theologically armed to teach these kinds of things? Because you know, you know, there is more confusion about sex and gender and marriage and, and the roles of men and women than ever. And you know that the health of a church depends profoundly upon the health of the individual families in that church. And so what that means is that your teaching ministry is more needed than ever before. Because, because look what Paul says in verse five. Look what he says is at stake in this teaching. Look at the end of verse five. Old, older women instruct the young women to submit to their own husbands. Why? For what purpose? To what end? In order that the word of God not be reviled. Do you see that? If we don't do submission, and if we don't do it right, if we don't model to the world what it is and why it is beautiful, the word of God will be reviled, literally blasphemed. That's what Paul means. What does he mean? He means, listen very carefully, when men don't lead with love and when women don't submit to and follow that leadership with joy, the word of God we claim to believe becomes graffitied and ignored. Why? Because when we lose the roles of men and women in marriage, when we marginalize the loving leadership of men and the joyful submission of women, what we lose is the gospel itself. That's what Paul means. Why? Because, and I'll explain this later, but at the end of the day, the roles of man and wife in marriage are designed by God to be a living illustration of the gospel itself. And when we minimize and when we ignore the, the roles, the glorious roles of men and women in marriage, which includes the loving, sacrificial leadership of men and the, the intelligent, happy support of that leadership by women, what we lose in the end is the tangible dramatization of the gospel itself. Don't you see? Submission has nothing, absolutely nothing with men being better than women, but only in embracing the roles designed for them by God himself. They're designed by God so that the world can look at a husband and wife and say, aha, now I get it. That is the love and sacrifice of Christ. That is the grace and beauty of the bride he redeemed. Now I get it. That's what's at stake. So here we go. The first feature of submission is this, number one, the glorious domain of submission. The glorious domain of submission. And by domain, I mean the context in which submission exists, namely the husband of wife in the context of marriage. Because the thing is, the bitter bite that we are tempted to taste it's not only sweetened, but it's altogether removed when we understand what biblical marriage is first. Because I'll just tell you, our thoughts about marriage are not nearly as beautiful or theological as they should be. They're, they're not. You see, with all of our legislative efforts to protect the sanctity of marriage, we sometimes forget that what makes traditional marriage significant has nothing to do with tradition. Here's what I mean. Have you ever considered the fact that the Bible begins with a wedding in the first book and it ends with a wedding in the last book? Isn't that interesting? Genesis 2 is the first wedding in history between Adam and Eve. Revelation 21 is the last wedding in history between God and his people forever. Isn't that interesting to you? And isn't it also interesting that marriage is one of the primary metaphors that Yahweh uses with the people of Israel? And isn't it additionally interesting that Ephesians 5.25 calls husbands to love their wives just as Christ loved his bride, the church? See, my point is very simply this. Traditional marriage has nothing to do with conservative politics, but only cosmic significance. And if we get marriage and what it is and what it's designed to do then and only then can we make sense out of submission in marriage. And so turn, if you would, to Genesis chapter 2. 
Genesis chapter 2, which you know as the backstory of how men and women came into existence. It's the backstory of how marriage came into existence. Genesis 2, second chapter of the Bible, obviously. And back in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, it already told us that God made man and woman in his own image and likeness. And here in chapter 2, God unfolds the details. And here he is in chapter 2, verse 18. Here's Adam, all alone, by himself, a bachelor in paradise. And what does God say about that? It is not good for the man to be alone. I shall make for him a helper suitable for him. Do you see that? That's, that's not good. It's not a good thing, which is really jolting because everything so far in creation has been good, right? God saw the light, it was good. God saw the land and the sea, they were good. God saw the plants, they were good. God saw the sun and the moon, they were good. Everything is good, it's really, really good. This is fantastic, except of course for this. This is not good. You see, chapter 2, verse 18 is like hitting a speed bump at, at 70 miles an hour. This right here, the, the king ruling the planet by himself alone, this is not a good thing. And so what does God say? I shall make for him a helper suitable for him. I mean, I mean think about this. Something is missing here because everything in creation has its counterpart, right? There was the sun and the moon. There was the morning and and the evening, there was the day and the night, there was the sea and the dry land. Here now is the man and his. Wait, something is missing. Everything in the universe has its perfect complement and counterpart, except that is, of course, for the man. And so again, Yahweh says, I shall make for him a helper suitable for him. Literally, in the Hebrew, a helper according to his counterpart. In other words, the Hebrew literally, get this, and gives the idea that what the man needed was something or someone equal to him, but different than him at the exact same time who could help him carry out the rule, the mandate to, to rule the planet as God's vice regent king on the earth. In other words, the king needed a queen. And, and you remember what happened. God parades the entire animal kingdom in front of Adam to name them. And yet the point, the point was that he was looking for that special someone. And yet the problem is dogs and cats and kangaroos were never going to work. I mean, they were helpful, but they were not helpers. See, they, they were different than him, which met the criteria, but they weren't equal to him. That's the problem. You see, the helper that he needed had to be both equal to him and different than him to help him carry out God's rule to subjugate and rule the earth. And so what does God do? What does he do? Well, he puts Adam under divine anesthesia, performs the first ever surgical procedure, removes one of Adam's ribs and creates, literally in the Hebrew, builds out of the rib this thing called a woman. And Adam in post-op, he comes to, rubs his eyes, sees this, this bride presented to him, and out of his mouth, he jaw hits the floor, and out of his mouth comes nothing less than poetry. It's, it's poetry. In, in, in Genesis 2, the, the first ever recorded words by the man were nothing less than a poem, and it goes like this. This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman because from man she was taken. Now, it doesn't sound particularly pretty in English, but it's fantastic in Hebrew. And the reason for that is because Adam was making a statement about the woman that was, that was profoundly theological. He uses this elegant play on words to say that although his wife was absolutely equal to him as his flesh and bone, she was simultaneously different than him. And you can hear it both in Hebrew and in English. Listen carefully. Adam said, she shall be called Isha, woman, because from Ish, man, she was taken. Do you hear that? Isha, woman, ish, man. Woman, man, similar, but not the same. 
equal and yet different, alike in so many wonderful ways and yet not exactly identical. You see, what they are is complementary. And you might be thinking, okay, well, if that's where marriage comes from, and it is, well, then the question is, where is submission in the text? Because although, Jared, I grant you, I see the equality of man and woman in the text, what I don't see is the submission of the woman to the man in the text. Where is submission in the text? And yet, didn't you notice? Didn't you notice? Number one, man was created first, then woman. Number two, did you notice in chapter one that the name for the entirety of the human race was man, from where we get mankind? Number three, did you notice that only man was created out of the dust and that woman was created from him? Number four, did you notice that the man named the woman? She shall be called woman because from man she was taken. And number five, did you notice that her title as helper, which by the way, parentheses, is also a name for God in the Old Testament as well, that her title for helper indicates that she would assist him in his role to rule and subjugate the earth. Anybody think so? What does any of that prove? It proves that in this thing called marriage, men are called to be the leaders. And we know it proves that. We know it proves that because the New Testament cites every single one of those things as the theological explanation for submission in marriage because although man and woman are absolutely equal in God's image and one flesh together in marriage, at the exact same time they are differentiated from one another in terms of their roles and their functions and their responsibilities. That's the difference. She was made after him. The human race was made from him, named after him. She was created from him. She was named by him. She would assist him as God's vice regent king on the earth. And all of that, get this, all of that is the Bible's ingenious and very delicate way of saying in the hierarchy of the family, Men are called to lead and women are called to use all of their various gifts to support that leadership. But you see in 1 Corinthians 11 and Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3 and 1 Timothy 2 and Titus 2 and 1 Peter 3, when, that, when those passages call wives to submit to their husbands and their husbands to lead, Genesis chapter 2 is the background. So the question is, if submission can only be seen as beautiful when you understand it in the context of marriage, the question is, what then is marriage? And the answer is this, listen very carefully. Marriage, biblically defined, is the affectionate and for all intents and purposes, permanent union of man and woman equally created in the image and likeness of God whose mission and purpose together is to glorify God in different but equally significant ways than when you're single. Which is a real mouthful, I know, but I'll say it again. Marriage is the affectionate and for all intents and purposes, permanent union of man and wife equally created in the image and likeness of God whose mission and purpose together is to glorify God in different but equally significant ways than when you're single. That is marriage. It's all about the glory of God. Don't you see? And yet one of the ways that husbands and wives bring glory to God in marriage is when they fulfill the particular roles designed for them by God. Namely, husbands who lead with love and wives who support and strengthen that leadership with joy or as the New Testament calls it, submission. Now we're gonna explain. We're gonna explain and define what submission is down in point three, so you gotta wait a while, but I really wanna ask you first, Christ community, do you love marriage? I don't mean do you think it's important politically, but is it sacred and significant to you theologically? I mean, do you get what biblical marriage is designed to do? Let's ask it this way. If someone from the LGBTQIA came up to you and they stopped you on the street and they asked you, 
Okay, why is marriage between a man and a woman such a big deal to you? When really? I mean, don't you think that love is love no matter to whom it is given or with whom it is shared? Why one woman and why one man? Answer me! What would you say? Do you have an answer? See, the question is, what is the deepest reason the Bible gives for why it has to be one man and it has to be one woman or it's not actually a marriage? And that brings us to the second feature of submission. Number two, the grand design of submission. The grand design of submission. In other words, before we even, before we even define what submission is, we, we, have to, we have to investigate what submission is designed to portray. What I mean is, when it comes to marriage, you know this, there's way more than meets the eye, isn't there? In other words, the Bible tells us that what makes marriage profoundly significant and why the roles of man and woman in marriage are unchangeable and non-negotiable is because marriage is not actually about the two people getting married. It's not. Rather, marriage is about what God is doing and what God has done in human history because I don't know what kind of movies you like, but I love mysteries and movies with a plot twist and marriage, you see, is one of the greatest mysteries and plot twists in history. You know why? Listen very carefully. Because marriage, with all of its love and affection and romance and companionship and sacrifice is all a design by God to display something profound about himself. See, the Bible clobbers us with the reality that marriage is designed by God to be a parable, a picture, a pointer, an illustration of something glorious and profound. Marriage, you see, is to be a living illustration of the God who became man and without ever ceasing to be God, died in the place of the very people who deserved to die. In other words, marriage is a parable that displays the very drama of salvation between Christ and his church. That is why it is worth fighting for. And this is precisely what we see in Ephesians chapter 5, isn't it? In fact, I want you to turn there to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5, because that's where we see the mystery of marriage revealed. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul pulls back the curtain, as it were, and he reveals to us that what marriage is is more sacred and significant than most of us have ever even imagined. Ephesians 5, and look very carefully at what Paul does in verse 31. Ephesians 5, 31, look very carefully at what he does. Do you see what he does there? What does he quote? Genesis 2, verse 24, which says, a man shall leave his father and mother and he shall be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Do you see it? The mystery long hidden for ages has been revealed. Human marriage points to the God-man and his girl, the church. Marriage is not an end in itself. It is a parable that portrays the greatest love story in history. Do you see? In other words, marriage is not just a gift to the couple getting married. It's a gift to the world to show the world the great lengths to which God had to go to save sinners from eternal woe and despair. And the great lengths to which God had to go to do that was sending Jesus Christ who died for his bride, the church, and that is what marriage is all about right there, the drama of salvation itself. That is why it is sacred. What's so intriguing to me is that when Adam and Eve got married, they had no idea what their marriage was designed to display. I mean, unless God told them that they did not have a clue that their marriage was designed to be this parable, this, this, little, this little illustration, this stage play that illustrates Christ and the church. 
See, there was nothing accidental. There was nothing coincidental about the design of marriage. It's not as if God came up with marriage first and then later on said, hey, you know what? I think I'm gonna use that as, a, as, a, as an example to, to display Christ in the church. No, it was exactly the opposite. From the very beginning, God designed marriage to display Christ in the church centuries and centuries before Christ ever even walked on the planet. But don't you see? Don't you tell your kids? Don't you tell your grandkids? Don't you remind yourself? Marriage is not a game. The stakes are really, really high. Marriage is not ultimately about not being single or, or buying a home or, or sleeping together. Marriage is about glorifying Christ together in equally but, but different ways, equally significant ways than when you're single, which means I need to ask you this morning. If you're married here this morning, how is your marriage going? How are things going right now? And I don't, I don't just mean are you not committing adultery. I mean, are you proactively pursuing the kind of love in marriage that makes the gospel make sense? In other words, can the love in your marriage work as a kind of reference point by which your children and the world can begin to get a glimpse of Christ's love for the church and the church's love for him? Because that's what marriage is, leadership and submission included. It is a mission. It is God's mission to magnify Christ, to model his love so that the world can see that and marvel at who God is. And when we forget that, when we make marriage all about our preferences or all about our politics, we sever marriage from the very thing that gives it its deepest significance. Now, what this looks like and, and, and how this works is just going to have to wait for another sermon, okay? Not, not one sermon can say everything that needs to be said about submission. And this sermon is not about marriage as a whole, but submission in particular. But just know this about marriage. It functions only as the parable when men and women fulfill the roles given to them by God. In other words, everything is by design. Look up at Verses 22 through 24. Ephesians 5, 22 through 24. Notice very carefully the design of submission. Paul says, Wives are to submit to their husbands as to the Lord. Why? Because the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is, here it is, the head of the church. He being the savior of the body. But as the church submits itself to Christ, so also the wives are to, to their husbands in everything. Don't you see? When we look at the whole Bible, not just this verse by itself, but the whole Bible, this verse is not only theological, it is beautiful. It fits, it makes sense. Because when we look at all the scriptures, we see that man and woman are equal equal together in God's image and likeness. And yet in that partnership, God is glorified when men and women fulfill the particular roles given to them by God. You see, God is glorified when men lead with love and courage. God is equally glorified when wives serve and support that leadership with sacrifice. You see, whatever womanhood is of which submission is a part, it displays the very drama of redemption itself. That is the design. And so Christ's community, married people, single people, do you understand the roles within marriage? Do you understand what they are designed to do? I mean, there's so much more that, that, than meets the eye here. And, and actually, let me put you on the spot here. How would you answer the, the modern feminist and their disdain for the women's roles as described in the Bible? How would you answer them? What, what would you say to a member of the homosexual community as to why it has to be one man and one woman? What would you say? Or here's another one. The Quran teaches in chapter four that Men are not only allowed to beat their wives, but to have multiple wives. What is the deepest reason why none of that is okay? It reminds me of several years ago, 
I was waiting for a, a, to meet a student at Starbucks, and the Starbucks was located uh, very nearby uh, Gonzaga University, um, not the most conservative of universities. And so I'm sitting there, and there was a professor and a student, and they were meeting together discussing a paper that the student was writing for the class. And the paper was, of course, about marriage, ironically enough. And, and they were kind of going back and forth discussing the, the paper topic, and the professor eventually goes, you know, <laughs> just with the scorn in his voice, you know, I don't get it. Why fundamentalists, and immediately I knew he was talking about people like me, even though I wouldn't classify myself as that, but nevertheless, I knew it was me. Uh, he didn't know me, but he's just talking out loud. I don't, I don't get why fundamentalists make such a big deal about traditional marriage. I mean, wh who, are, who are the homosexual community hurting? I mean, what does it even matter? And I almost, I almost said, it matters because it ruins the parable. It ruins the parable. It has nothing to do with being better than homosexuals or Muslims. It's, it's because one man and one woman together display Christ and the church. That is why it matters. And when we lose those things, we lose the picture of the gospel itself. Which brings us finally to the third feature of submission. The third feature, number three, the God-centered definition of submission the God-centered definition of submission. You see, now that we've seen the glorious domain of submission, which is marriage, and now that we've seen the grand design of submission, which is Christ and the church, we're now ready to define what submission is and what it is not. But here's the thing. Do you want to know what is the main obstacle or hurdle that prevents people from embracing submission as a good thing? I mean, I mean, like if there was like one thing that people could wrap their brains around, and if they did, they could see that there was nothing about submission by which to be threatened, what would that one obstacle, what would that one uh, a hurdle be? What, what would that thing be if they could just wrap their heads around it? You know what it is? Here it is. If they could just get this, it would solve so many problems. Listen very carefully. Differing levels of authority does not equal inferiority. Differing levels of authority does not equal inferiority. We think it does, but it doesn't. In other words, the one who leads is not inherently superior to the one who is led. Now, God is, of course, superior, and, and we're, we're talking about the, at the human level, in a sense. And, and I know that feels illogical. That, that, that can't be, but I would argue that is a more Western American mentality and not necessarily a biblical one. You see, there is nothing inherent within leadership and submission that automatically makes the one who leads superior to the one who submits. You see, biblically speaking, get this now, biblically speaking, you can have two people in a relationship in which exists hierarchy and even levels of authority, and yet those two people be absolutely equal in terms of their worth and value and significance you know where else that exists? That exists and that has always existed in the Trinity itself. Do you remember? Over and over and over Christ submitted to the Father. He was obedient to the Father. And yet, what was it again that got him killed? What was it that got him crucified? Again and again, he said, I am equal with God. And not only that, I am God. Do you see? The only way to make sense out of God or the Trinity or even your Bibles for that matter is if you can create a category in your minds that Christ is both equal as God and yet submissive as the Son of God. <laughs> and notice I didn't say inferior, I said submissive because those aren't the same thing. You see, within the Trinity, there is both equality and hierarchy. In other words, God, 
the Father and God the Son are equal. And yet even within the triune God, there are differing roles and responsibilities and even levels of authority. And that is exactly what marriage portrays. Two people who are absolutely equal before God in terms of their worth and value and significance. And yet the thing that differentiates and distinguishes them from one another are their differing roles and functions and responsibilities. That is it. That's all we're saying. Father and son, equal but different. Similar but not the same. Alike but not identical. Husband and wife, equal but different. Similar but not the same. Alike but not identical. And so what that means is the true biblical submission of a wife to a husband in marriage is not only a picture of Christ and the church, it is a picture of the Trinity. But what we're dying to know is what does it mean for a wife to submit to her husband? I mean, we've got to get to the bottom of this because marriages are at stake and and the reputation of the church is at stake and the reputation of Christ is at stake. What does it mean for a wife to submit to her husband? I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. In fact, free of charge, I will give you seven things that submission is not so that we can see the beauty of what submission is. They're in your notes. I think this is going to go fast. Number one, submission does not mean putting the husband in the place of Christ. It does not mean putting the husband in the place of Christ. In other words, marriage, in marriage, the, the husband is not the king and lord of your life. He's not the surrogate Christ or little pope of your marriage. Now, to be sure, he is called to lead, and wives are called to submit to that leadership, but at the end of the day, they are both equally under the authority of the king. Number two. Submission does not mean absolute submission without exception. It doesn't mean absolute submission without exception. In other words, submission means that you would never ever follow a husband to do anything unholy or immoral or illegal or unloving. And the reason for that is because her highest allegiance is not ultimately to her husband, but to the one who is the Lord over her husband. Number three. Submission does not mean leaving your brain or your will at the altar. It's not to leave your brain or your will at the altar. See, for a wife to submit to her husband does not mean that he does all of her thinking for her. It's not at all that he makes all these unilateral decisions without ever consulting her. No, in fact, as his helper, if he's not an idiot, he should consult her in just about everything. I'm taking notes to myself right now. Number four. Submission does not mean incompetence or inferiority to your husband. It does not mean incompetence or inferiority to your husband. You see, for a wife to submit to her husband does not mean that she's inferior or that she gives no input on decisions or that she has no influence on her husband. In fact, it's just the opposite. Probably, in many ways, she is more competent than he is. And apart from Christ and his word, she is the most influential person in his life. Which leads us to number five. Submission does not mean agreeing with everything your husband does and says. It does not mean de facto agreeing with everything that your husband does and says. Now, there is a way to disagree that still honors, that still respects your husband's position as the leader of the home. You can still disagree and still honor your role but there is a way to do that well. But in marriage, the husband is is reckoning with an independent mental center that has thoughts that are worth listening to. In fact, in Genesis 2.18, when it says that she is his helper, that probably means that as his helper, there will be times when she will humbly and lovingly disagree with him. You see, Wise biblical leadership doesn't always mean getting the last word. Oftentimes it means saying, you were right, I was wrong. Number six, submission does not mean avoiding every effort to change or influence your husband. It does not mean avoiding every effort to change or influence your husband. See, just because a husband is called to lead does not make him untouchable. He's not the mob boss of the family who's freed up from all accountability. No, in fact, as the one called by Christ to lead, he has even more accountability and she is the one who is called to hold him accountable. 
Number seven, submission does not mean that a wife acts out of fear. She doesn't act out of fear. In other words, submission is free and willing and voluntary and glad-hearted subjection and, and strengthening and support of his leadership. And it's never, ever coerced by fear. You see, to submit to a husband does not mean at all that she is bullied or threatened or intimidated into submission. That's called abuse. That's not what we mean. Rather, biblical submission is a place of profound safety and security and love as the husband provides and protects and partners with his wife in this grand adventure called the Great Commission. That, all of that is what submission is not. Which leaves us with one final thing to do this morning. 45 minutes later, now we define what submission is. You ready? <laughs> the whole thing was aimed to get to this point right here. Here's submission. Submission is the divine calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and help him carry it through according to her own unique giftedness. That means her role is to strengthen and support his leadership and help him achieve what he is called by God to do. And what is he called by God to do? There are at least five things that husband is called to do and all of them begin with the letter D. Number one. Husbands are called to lead their family to delight in the beauty of Christ through his word. Number two, they are to lead their family to depend on the power of Christ for him to do the impossible. Number three, they are to lead their family to display the worth of Christ to the world. Number four, they are to lead their family to devote their lives to ministry in the local church. Number five, husbands are to lead their family to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ to perishing family and friends and neighbors. Don't you see? Your husband's job is to lead you in those five things and your job is to help him lead you and the family in those five things with all of the ways that God has gifted you to do that. He can't do it without you and the gifts that you bring to the table. But you see, this has nothing to do with old-fashioned male chauvinistic domination. It is her helping him point her and the family to the most beautiful and satisfying reality in the universe, namely Jesus Christ himself. Now, is there more to submission than that? Of course there is, of course there is. I mean, one sermon can't achieve all the conversations and, and encounters and all the uh, caveats and all the various situations that will explain how submission works when two people disagree or when the husband wants to go a certain direction and the wife does not or financial decisions or any of those things. I mean, we'll have to get to those one day. And unless I die or the rapture comes, we will cover that eventually. But to the older women in this congregation, 50-ish and above, one thing is clear. One of the things you are to teach the younger women in this church is how to submit to their husbands. That's what the text says. I didn't write it. I'm just reporting the facts, ma'am. This is what Paul said that older women are to do. Bottom line, women are to help younger women have marriages that put Christ on display, to, 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 have, to have marriages that have cosmic significance. The only question is, ladies, how do you do that? I mean, what do you give them? What do you, what do you teach them? Because I, I mean, this probably sounds kind of complicated and kind of intimidating, teaching wives to submit to their husbands. I mean, where do I even begin? Here's what you give them. I have an answer to the question. What, what, what do you give younger women to teach them what it means to submit to their husbands and why it matters and why it has cosmic significance? What do you give them? Here's what you give them. You give them Christ. That's what you give them. That's what you teach them. You teach them Christ. <laughs> what I mean is you sit down with younger women to disciple them, and you open the book, and you look at the text, and you give them Christ. What I mean is you help them see from the Bible Christ for the supremely valuable treasure that he is that he is supreme, that he is sufficient, that he is sovereign, that he is satisfying. 
You just labor to show them from the text the unending riches they have in Christ. I mean, you might not be saying one word about submission, but in looking at the glory of Christ, you are giving them the theological infrastructure they need to help them be the kinds of wives they are called to be. Do you see where I'm going with this? So get this now, the secret, and I love secrets, the secret to being a holy, loving, sacrificial people, not just marriages, but all people in the church, the secret to being the kinds of husbands and wives that God is calling you to be is to have your eyes opened to new vistas of the glory of Christ. Don't you see, to see Christ is to become more like him. We imitate those we admire. We are conformed to the image of those with whom we are captivated. And so ladies, when you help the younger women and you disciple them, be infatuated with Christ above all things, the components of their lives, submission included, falls exactly into place. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are a grateful people this morning. Grateful for your word. Grateful for your control over human history. Grateful for the heat in the room. Everything from your hand is a gift. And marriage is one of those many gifts, oh Lord. And it has a very strategic design in the world. And oh Lord, I stand in line with the rest of the saints, declaring that I myself need help to do what you call me to do as a husband. My failures are blatant and obvious. They are a great sore thumb in my life and, and I need you, O oh Lord, to help me, to strengthen me, to help me be a, a humble man who loves my wife, O oh Lord, O oh Christ, as you have loved the church. O oh Lord, we know that this kind of marriage is, is rare. It's, it's so rare, as rare as a, a hole in one or, or winning the lottery. It, it's, as, it's as extinct as the saber-toothed tiger almost. And so we, we ask you, O oh Lord, we ask you to help us be a healthy church with healthy marriages and healthy parenting. And Lord, to the singles in the room, I pray that they would rejoice even in this moment. Not just rejoice that others are married and they are not, Lord, but I pray for them. I pray that they would see that they are strategically positioned as singles to equally maximize their lives for the Great Commission. I pray that they would see that singleness is no defect because Christ, you were single your whole life and you never went on a date and you were the most whole and significant person in human history. Pray that they would be greatly encouraged, O Lord, knowing that one day they too will be married when the church is joined to you. So Lord, we give you thanks for this gathering together. I pray that this conversation, this sermon, O Lord, is, would be just one brick in our understanding of marriage and what it's designed to do. May, may we build on this and answer more questions and, and, and really give us a picture of what marriage is designed to be and do always and only for the glory of Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.